was flat praying in a certain place. And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answered from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, would give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, would give a scorpion? If you then, who are prone to mistakes, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly parent give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of God? Friends, will you join me in a spirit of prayer? Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. In this morning's scripture, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And I will say that we are going to have a longer sermon series on prayer later on this year, where we'll dive into some of the nuances of this critical practice of our faith. But today, we look at this specific passage. We look at this very specific prayer in the Gospel of Luke and the teachings that follow it. So in this passage, Jesus is teaching his followers to pray. It's in a lot of ways, a technical skill to pray in this technical way. He literally gives them a script. He gives them words, which through the ages have been translated and translated and reinterpreted and appear in a version in our own worship service each and every week. Over the course of Christian history, faithful believers have gathered to pray together. And some of these prayers, like this one, like the Lord's Prayer, they have stuck with us. The Lord's Prayer is, of course, not the only prayer that has taken up roots in the Christian tradition. I imagine many of you can think of others. Many of you may know these words from the prayer of St. Francis, 
perhaps by heart. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Or perhaps this other one that is spoken so many times each and every day, often in unity with others, often in a circle, often in the evening hours at support and recovery groups across the nation, the one that goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Having words like these that are passed on from one believer to the next, from one generation to the next, from one seeker to the next, it unites us. It really unites us, all in that great feeling of being a part of something larger than ourselves, a part that spans time. Have you thought about that when you are saying the Lord's Prayer or another prayer that has been passed along from Christian tradition to Christian, about how it really has been passed? Where did you learn it from? Have you thought about the many people who came before you who prayed those exact same words and put those exact same intentions out into the air, lifting them to God? When I say the Lord's Prayer, often I like to think about a particular person in my own life or in my lineage or in larger human and nature history or present. I think about my great-grandmother, who I never met, but who I know would have said those same words that I say in the Lord's Prayer in the Irish Catholic community of which she was a part in Philadelphia. I think about the great mystery that is saying these same words throughout the ages, from the disciples to now. This morning, when we say the Lord's Prayer together in a moment when we have communion, I invite you to think of someone who may have said these words in years past or who may be saying them on a Sunday morning across the country or the globe and invite them into your mind's eye and feel that connectedness. These are the words of our people. Having these words to speak when we wish to tap into the larger tradition of which we are a part, it can be really critically important at different times in our lives. Seeing ourselves as a part of this larger whole can help us to feel connected, less alone, and can help us to feel grounded in a faith that is not a passing fad, but rather a timeless rock on which to stand. A community of faith that transcends borders and divides time and space. But as much as the Lord's Prayer has the power to take us from Kronos time, that's the time you see on a clock, into Kairos time, which is this mystery God time. It's also very much a prayer that we say together, live, with the people who are right next to us in the pews here at the Nahant Village Church, in the present moment. And I lift this insight to you about that prayer. There's a pastor, theologian, and author, Reverend Nadia Bolsweber, someone whose work I commend to you, who described the necessity for these memorized, timeless, communal prayers that we say with one another in corporate worship, which is when we worship together. And she talked about how sometimes we don't really believe one part of the prayer on a given Sunday morning, or one part doesn't really resonate with us. Say, for example, forgive us our 
sins or trespasses or debts. We may be feeling just fine or neutral or even detached one morning from those particular words and in boldly asking for forgiveness from our creator. It may not feel critical for us that morning, but perhaps for the person who is sitting just a few inches away from us in the pew, who is wallowing in their own sense of unworthiness or sin, they may need us to pray those words loudly. Words that rehumanize them as a beloved child of God and a beloved part of community. And so we pray that part with enthusiasm because we pray it for the person in the pew next to us who desperately needs that part, but for whatever reason cannot boldly ask for it themselves. Praying the Lord's Prayer together is about relationship as much as it is about the technical words. It's about praying with and for one another. So when we zoom back into this morning's scripture, Jesus teaches the people to pray. He gives them the words. And in many ways it's technical, but he also teaches them that through the medium of prayer, they can learn more about their relationship with each other, but also with God, one that is deep and personal. So in our scripture, Jesus invites his disciples to use this exact same language for God that he himself uses. So think about that. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is in our Trinitarian faith God and not God all at the same time, that individual invites us to use the same language for God as he does. To say Abba or Father, to call upon God as children call upon a loving parent. There is implicit in this kind of language this sense of belonging a sense of family, a sense that we belong to God and that God's relationship to us is life-giving. This prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, it is not distant, it is really personal and close. Abba, Father. Think about the words that we say, our Father. These are personal relationship words. And now, this is a really bold prayer that Jesus is teaching his disciples. It is personal and it is compelling, but it begs the question from the disciples, how will we know that God will hear our prayers? And so after teaching the prayer, Jesus moves into parable mode. He builds up the disciples' trust with a parable, with a story. He tells a story about hospitality. And now hospitality was of paramount importance in the biblical world. So when a guest arrived, even unexpected, even at midnight, there was no question that hospitality must be extended. And I remember I've experienced that kind of hospitality, that midnight hospitality, when I was visiting my deeply religious Church of Christ relatives in Texas. And I rolled in from a very long road trip far too late at night, following long, long hours of construction traffic. But when I appeared, when I rolled up to their house just outside Fort Worth at 11.30 p.m., these family members brought out an entire spread. There was cheese and crackers and fruit and cake. They fed me well. It was stunning hospitality, memorable hospitality. Have you ever experienced that kind of grace? and welcome, 
even at an inconvenient hour, even when you are the inconvenient guest, it's radical and it's out of the ordinary and it's so profoundly welcoming. And I think about that experience when I read this morning's scripture. So when the man in this story, he finds himself without enough bread for his guest in the middle of the night. So he says, wait right here. And he goes to his neighbor. He goes to his neighbor friend because he is going to borrow some. And now think about this. It is not mid-afternoon. It's the middle of the night. And the man in our story knows that when he goes and knocks on that door to borrow some bread, it will involve waking up the whole household. But he does it anyway. Because the message is hospitality over shame and embarrassment and inconvenience always. And so the neighbor answers him in a way that we might answer people who knock on our door at midnight. Do not bother me. The neighbor answers from within. The door has already been locked and my children, they're asleep, they're in bed with me and I cannot get up. I can't give you anything. And as we read that today, we might cringe and really empathize with this poor guy being woken up in the middle of the night. And if I'm honest, I only want people knocking on my door in the middle of the night if there is a real crisis. But that's the point. That's the point of this parable. And often parables are these exaggerated stories, but it drives home this, that the ability of the friend to provide hospitality and thus his honor is on the line, it's at stake. And that is a crisis, a crisis of hospitality, not in fact trivial, but rather really very important. And so Jesus says that the man will eventually respond to his friend's request, not because he's a friend, but because of his friend's shamelessness. And now some versions of the Bible translate this word as persistence, but shamelessness is the more accurate translation from the Greek original word, anidia, shamelessness. Our bread-seeking, hospitality-driven main character displays zero shame in asking for help to meet the requirements of hospitality. There's a great theologian, Elizabeth Johnson, who says this, the woken-up friend would incur dishonor if he failed to help his neighbor in this essential obligation. So he will respond because of social pressure at the very least. Jesus' parable implies that if that is so among friends, with all their mixed motives and self-interest, how much more so with God? who wants to give us what is good and life-giving, and who is invested in keeping God's name holy. This is Jesus' parable, to let us know that God cares about what we need, that God is invested in us. And then we get to that final third. The final third of this morning scripture contains these sayings about prayer. Meditations on what it is that is happening when we pray. What can we expect? What is this? And this is the part of this morning scripture that is the most frustrating part for many readers. This is where the saying, search and you will find, comes from. Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door will be opened for you. 
But for many of us, we know what it's like to knock on a door in our life so many times that our fists become weary and we think the wood might splinter beneath the blows. Many of us know what it's like to desire something so greatly and for the door to that option or opportunity or change to never open. And often it's not us that we are praying for, but the wider world. God knows that we have prayed for an end to senseless gun violence, and yet that end has not come. Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, all since the last time that we gathered here to worship and pray. God knows that we have prayed for access to clean drinking water in all parts of the world, only to see that people continue to suffer lack of access. God knows. God knows that we have prayed for affordable housing. God knows that we have prayed for an end of hate crimes. God knows that we have prayed for healthcare funding and research and access. God knows. God knows. God knows. So how then do we reconcile all that with Jesus' words in this scripture? And this is where we wonder why God Do so many prayers seem to go unanswered? Why, God, do the doors not open when we knock? And there is no simple answer. And people try. People try from pulpits all over the world and in books and in articles. People try to give simple answers. Answers rooted in theologies of platitudes, avoidance of lived experience, rarely trauma-informed. And I respect you all too much to do that. I respect that your lives have not been simple and your relationship with God over your life has not been simple and thus no simple response will do. I respect you enough to know that some of your prayers have been answered obviously, quickly, clearly, and some have gone unanswered and many fell someplace in the middle. And I respect all of our Christian faith too much to think that we as humans can rationally and logically explain the prayers that go unanswered. There's too much in our faith that points to mystery and spirit and kairos time and the unknown for me to pretend that any of us have exact answers. Even Jesus in his ministry, who many people say Jesus is the answer, but really Jesus is more of a question because in his ministry, he only answered something like three questions. But do you know how many he asked? He asked 307. And he taught us in stories and in the experiences of people's lives. So the point of our faith is perhaps not to have answers, but to be bold enough to believe in something greater than that which we see with the naked eye and experience in our day-to-day lives. Bold enough to question what is and to pray for a kingdom to come that is greater in love, in kindness, in generosity of the Spirit. Scripture tells us that God is all-powerful, but do you know it also tells us that God is not the only power in the world? There are other powers at work, which are referenced in the Lord's Prayer that we pray each week. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is at work the powers of destruction and death and loneliness and hate and self-loathing and self-interest above communal interest. Those are at work in the world, often manifested through systemic and individual sin. 
And although God has won the ultimate victory over powers of evil in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that battle of good versus evil is repeated in our lives and in our societies and in the communities around us over and over again. So why do we pray? We pray because we are shameless. We are shameless. We are like a neighbor who will knock on their neighbor's door at midnight for bread because hospitality matters that much. Like one who puts their own shame and embarrassment aside in order to provide for a guest, we are that kind of shameless. We pray because we have searched and found again and again stories of resurrection from what seemed hopeless or impossible. And we believe these stories. We pray because we have decided and chosen and vowed to be the bearers of justice and grace and hospitality and love in a world that so desperately needs each of these. We pray because we have decided to believe in resurrection, to believe in the ultimate triumph of good over evil. We pray because we know that God has called us into a new and radical and bold and shameless way of living with and for one another. We pray because we are invited into a relationship with God who loves us so completely, a personal relationship, one where we call God Abba. We pray because we know that we need God in the mix for anything good to come about. And we pray because we know that we are not alone in struggle. We pray because we have to honor how we feel and what we desire, and because our prayers may then turn into actions. We pray because we know that while not every prayer is clearly answered, that when we put our collective intentions out there, there is a chance for the spirit to move. We pray because we are compelled and convicted by the story of Christ who rose from the grave even after death on a cross, because if that can happen, anything can happen. If that resurrection can happen, there is a shimmering flame of hope that justice and righteousness and grace and endless love can become a fire that changes this world. And so that's why we pray. We pray, God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.